Chapter 8, Part 1 of A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr. Chapter 8 The Diversity in Unity of Body and Mind. Propteria ad determinatum, quid mens humana reliquis intersit quidque reliques prestit necesse nobis es eius objecte hoc est corporis humani naturam cognoscere spinoza in conscious experience i am aware of two realities which in a sense are antithetical to one another in a sense also are complementary to one another and each of these realities in its full extension comprehends the other i am aware of nature and of life i recognize this twofold reality at every moment which i call now the recognition takes the form of an affirmation, an I am, which admits of no negation. There is no intelligible form, and no means of expression, by which I can affirm the proposition, I am not. Certainly I can conceive my non-existence. I do so, however, simply by suppressing in thought one of the antithetical realities in my conscious experience, and then conceiving the other self-subsistent. In imagination I can suppress life altogether, and find no difficulty in presenting nature unaffected by its absence. When I make explicit the full implication of this twofold existence, which I affirm in every moment of experience, it seems to involve 1. Space or extension, 2. Time or duration, 3. Definite objects and actual events, 4. Myself, here and now, actually and actively participating, contemplating objects and controlling events. It seems to me, however, that I participate in a purely external way, and that my activity, though affecting the disposition of external reality, is without any relation to its existence. On the other hand, an external and independent reality seems absolutely to condition my activity, so that if, in thought, I suppress this external reality, there is nothing on which it can take hold, and its self-subsistence is practically, if not theoretically, inconceivable. Nature, accordingly, appears to me to be self-subsistent, in a way that life is not. It is this one-sidedness of the antithesis, this emphasis on, or bias towards, the reality characterized by opposition to life, which unfits science to comprehend life itself. It could only comprehend life by including it within the objective system of nature, and this is impossible, because the objective system is never without its relation to the subjective system. The known can never detach itself completely from the living subject for which it exists, and physical reality is never pure reality, completely independent of psychical conditions. Science is always haunted by the specter of a reality which it cannot comprehend, because it is for this reality that it exists. At the same time that we recognize the impossibility of comprehending knowing itself in the ordered and orderly system of the known, we feel that the ideal of our science is balked by this very disability. Physical science, while drawn irresistibly toward the objective aspect of reality, is forever finding itself vainly trying to include an elusive reality without which it is truncated and incomplete. This is where philosophy diverges from science. It is this elusive consciousness, or life, which philosophy seeks to systematize, not by bringing it under an objective order to which it is not amenable, but by taking it in its first intention as a comprehensive activity from which the subject matter of the sciences is derived by abstraction or by schematization. 
the great difficulty of the task is that we have to work against the strong current which draws our mind away from attention to itself and its own activity toward the action which is the object of that activity it is a most significant fact that whenever philosophy yields to this attractive force when it adopts the scientific method it tends inevitably to take up a negative attitude toward the psychical reality which has called for its exercise and subordinates consciousness to an aspect or advantageous quality of physical reality the strong and eradicable tendency in science to treat objective nature as fundamental and self-subsistent and to reduce psychical nature to a dependent conditioned shadow phenomenon is in complete accord and perfect harmony with our nature we feel that in science and in scientific method we are simply letting our mind follow the natural disposition and direction of its activity in philosophy on the other hand we feel that we are struggling against the stream striving to reverse the natural inclination of the mind we have only to pause for a moment in our task whatever it may be to be conscious how completely dominated we are by the overwhelming sense of the objective reality of the physical world of ordinary experience we know that science completely transforms its aspect presenting to us as apparent and evanescent what we had at first taken to be solid and substantial replacing definite sensible objects with insensible atoms and molecules not even letting us rest in these intelligible objects but resolving them into electrical charges and yet however far we travel along the scientific road we are never allowed to lose our grasp of a definite objective reality philosophy raises strange doubts which even the plain man cannot wholly exclude and if we follow its lead it seems to undermine our whole common-sense notion of reality until in the end all that we have ordinarily regarded as certain or self-evident is left without support and what was sure science is replaced with total theoretical skepticism yet nature is too strong for us practically we are helpless nature says hume by an absolute and uncontrollable necessity has determined us to judge as well as to breathe and to feel nor can we any more forbear viewing certain objects in a stronger and fuller light upon account of their customary connection with the present impression than we can hinder ourselves from thinking as long as we are awake or seeing the surrounding bodies when we turn our eyes towards them in the broad sunshine it is incumbent on us therefore as a first task in philosophy to understand what this bias towards the reality of the object denotes science is practical it does not interpret reality it describes classifies and systematizes it it seeks uniformities it makes abstractions it analyzes it regards sameness and identity it disregards difference it replaces the richness and infinite variety of the real with an abstract and simple order in this process of discovering order and uniformity in experience it is not only rendering service to human activity it is doing far more than that it is actually developing human activity along lines naturally marked out for it by the human intellect itself the failure of science to interpret life is not a defect of science and the task of philosophy is not to take up the work of science at the point which for the moment marks the limit of its achievement science is practical activity on the lines which the intellect itself has marked out while philosophy is the comprehensive grasp of intellect in its relation to life this absolute and uncontrollable necessity is a significant fact for philosophy it reveals to us not that the bias in our nature is due to an illusion or that it is a falsification of reality but that the truth we discover in scientific inquiry is relative to our needs 
and determined by the range and mode of our activity there is yet a question to ask how comes it that physical science even if we allow that it can never complete itself cannot satisfy us with its concept of reality is it merely embarrassed because this elusive shadow thing we call life or consciousness escapes it clearly we have to look deeper for the cause of dissatisfaction this deep-seated cause is that science has no principle by which it can account for the uniformity it discovers everywhere in nature this uniformity of nature is for science an axiom and postulate nature does not reveal the ground of it in confirming the fact of it and science has to accept or rather assume it science itself therefore in the very principle on which it rests sets a problem for philosophy it is a problem of philosophy because no extension of scientific knowledge could attain its solution science depends on our regarding nature as a system and as one system yet the mere concept of external independent self-subsistent reality does not carry the necessity of order or system or unity on the contrary it makes order extremely improbable if not absolutely inconceivable chaos is not inconceivable nor even irrational but the concept of nature as chaos is the concept of nature as impossible science manifoldness is the essential character of nature every part of the material universe is external to every other part and there is no limit to its divisibility uniformity or unity of this manifold is not essential to the concept of a material universe if uniformity of nature be a necessary assumption of physical science it is not because it can be deduced from the concept of external reality on the other hand the essential character of life is indivisibility the manifoldness which characterizes living forms and individual minds is not a manifoldness of life or of mind but of physical nature the individuality of life or mind is not dependent on spatial division or limitations and its continuity or indivisibility is primarily the character which marks it as spiritual or psychical in distinction to material or physical consequently we seem to know two kinds of reality each in the abstract distinguished by characters which are the direct contrary of the other an abstract physical reality distinguished by manifoldness discreteness divisibility separability and an abstract psychical reality distinguished by indivisibility concreteness comprehensibility reduced therefore to its most abstract form the problem of philosophy is the problem of the one and the many if we approach it from the side of physical reality it is how are the many one if we accept that is to say the essential manifoldness and inquire to the nature of the uniformity it exhibits if we approach it from the side of psychical reality life or mind the problem is how the one is many we accept that is to say the unity of consciousness and search for the principle of diversity there seem to be only two alternatives they are directly contrary so that the truth of the one must imply the falsity of the other and there is no via media the alternatives are that either the uniformity of nature is a character inherent in the manifold and we discover it because it is there to be discovered and discoverable or the uniformity is the work of the mind a condition of knowing and not a character of the existence known the manifold according to the second alternative is the real existence in itself it is without order or system but it is capable of entering into order or system and this is what happens to it when the mind apprehends it order that is to say is imposed by the mind in the act itself of apprehending let us follow out then the two alternatives according to the first alternative the uniformity of nature is in nature as an existence 
in this case we must suppose the mind to be in the presence of a mystery in its very nature inexplicable which must ever remain a mystery how far soever knowledge extend because no principle can give us the clue we are and we feel ourselves to be in the presence of facts we may amuse ourselves in framing hypotheses of origin we may have and we have a physical science for there is no limit to discovery or description but though our science is secure we cannot have a philosophy if we are wise we shall take as our motto hypotheses non finco and content ourselves with describing in the most objective form we can command the facts which we shall accept at their face value without questioning their conformability to laws of thought when fact is irreconcilable with reason we can find comfort if not satisfaction in the truth that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy we may still have scientific research and it may meet with no small measure of success but if we push inquiry or challenge the criterion we cannot stop short of total skepticism naturalism as a philosophy rests on agnosticism such is the first alternative if we turn from this to the second alternative we get a philosophy of nature but apparently only by sacrificing or at least by undermining the foundation of physical science we begin it is true by recognizing a manifold upon which the mind imposes order and by which it moulds and frames to present a systematic unity but this manifold soon proves useless to assure the objectivity which physical science demands the laws of nature all fall within the subjective aspect of knowing the a priori conditions of knowledge are in the knowing mind not in the matter known this matter which began by being the reality itself in and for which and to apprehend which knowledge came into existence tends more and more to become useless then meaningless till finally as the empty or idle concept of the unknowable thing in itself it fades out of the picture altogether or remains in the unsubstantial form of a concept of limit such is the second alternative are these our only alternatives oh yes so long as we accept the concept of reality on which the opposite theories are based there is no way of escape from the dilemma to which they lead us once committed to the concept of reality distinct from life and knowledge a reality which conditions life and on which the activity of life depends a reality which is a merely objective existence contemplated by a knowing mind once committed to this and philosophy has only the two alternative directions one is realism the other is idealism if both turn out to be blind alley paths of speculation then the concept on which they are based stands self-condemned and progress depends on reforming the concept of reality such a reformation is not an undertaking to be entered on by arbitrary critical analysis our concept of reality is not under our control it is not a notion we have framed capriciously or acquired by any kind of reasoning from experience it is the expression in thought of what is rooted in fact there is only one possible condition on which we can reform our concept of reality and that is that we should be able to discover something in human nature itself which determines our concept such discovery would in itself bring to view a more fundamental concept we should find the ground for a new start in a new concept and philosophy itself demands of us this new task it is not enough to see that realism and idealism must end in skepticism for skepticism is not an end but a warning notice showing that we have taken a false route the theory of monads is based on a different concept of reality from that which leads to realism and idealism it is not a theory which corrects some false step in the realist or idealist argument it is an alternative theory 
but only in the meaning that it replaces the concept of reality from which they start with the concept in regard to which both are meaningless but their concept was not arbitrary it was rooted in the fact of existence the new concept must in the same way rest on fact of existence as distinct from reasoning it must not present itself as a matter of choice in fact the discovery that the old concept is irrational at once and necessarily brings to view the new concept descartes's new concept came to light in the discovery that the senses are not primarily intended to instruct us in truth but to protect the organism from destructive injury so our new concept comes to view with the discovery that our intellect is not primarily insight into reality but a mode of conscious activity evolved for the service of life before i try to point out more clearly what in actual experience has led to the formation of the false concept and indicate wherein we get the clue to the new concept i will illustrate the general principle by reference to an instructive analogy in the history of philosophy the more i study the philosophy of the seventeenth century the more striking appears to me the analogy between their problem and ours today. I have continually illustrated this in regard to the nature and origin of the problem of philosophy. I want now to show that the analogy is also very remarkable in regard to the development. When the Cartesian philosophy had run its course, a similar dilemma occurred to that which we find today in regard to the theories of realism and idealism. Descartes had started with the concept of two substances, thought and extension and this concept seemed the natural and necessary basis of the realities of experience, mind and matter, and the ground of knowledge and existence. It produced the principle of clear and distinct ideas, and it led to one of the most concentrated and definite efforts of philosophical construction in the whole history of human thought. It failed, however, and the failure became more marked as it developed, to solve the initial problem how and why the idea represents the reality. The movement ended in the monistic theory of Spinoza, Without questioning the dualistic concept of reality, which gave the whole movement its problem, Spinoza maintained the unity of substance. His problem, therefore, though resting on the same concept, became the direct antithesis of that of Descartes. The one starting with dualism strove to explain the unity implied in knowledge. The other, taking unity as a necessary presupposition, strove to explain the diversity which exists in fact. Mind and matter, Spinoza held, are parallel modes in which two infinite attributes of a universal substance manifest themselves here then was a dilemma from which there seemed no escape from which indeed there was no escape except the concept of reality as twofold that there are two independent substances or two mutually exclusive attributes of one substance and that these two substances or attributes are in a relation which brings it about that one represents the other and that other is representable to it and there are two alternatives either the duality is fundamental existence how then explain unity or the unity is fundamental existence how then explain diversity leibniz saw that there was no issue from this dilemma and it indicated to him falsity in the underlying concept he reformed the concept of reality by a new definition of substance he rejected the static principle which the old concept implied and replaced it with a dynamic principle a simple substance is a monad a subject of experience, an active center into which a universe is mirrored, whose activity consists in perception and appetition. From this reformed concept, a whole new advance was possible. The point I wish to call attention to, however, is not the new concept itself, but rather the fact in experience which had furnished the clue. This was the mind-body relation. Descartes and Spinoza had concentrated attention on this problem. 
each had sought to interpret it by studying the two existences in their complete separation and sought in the nature of the two realities the principle by which in the living individual they act harmoniously leibniz started with the principle of individuality with the unity in fact of mind and body i do not propose to enter on a criticism of leibniz's concept of substance as monad nor to follow the historical analogy further it is intended only to make clear my own theory this is that the common sense and scientific concept of reality is the necessary and natural consequence of the fact that our attention in ordinary life is primarily directed on and in a sense fixed to the matter which lies outside the percipient's own organism and on the life and conscious activity which are distinct from the percipient's own life and conscious activity everything material or spiritual which is brought completely within the acting agent's own instrumental organism that is everything which forms part of the mind-body individuality itself as it were withdrawn from attention since then our attention is fixed on a nature and life outside our individuality and since we are by our own nature rendered unable to direct conscious attention on the processes and structural content of our own organism and since of the far greater part of our physical and psychical nature we cannot even by a direct act of attention or by any effort become conscious it cannot but appear to us that the unity of this outside world is independent of us and conditions us and that life and knowledge are dependent on physical matter we go further for when we come to see that our own individuality is of the same stuff and continuous with the activity of this outer world and life it then seems to us that portions of these two antithetical realities are brought together and either by natural agency or by the power of a transcendent god have been blended into a cunningly contrived conscious mechanism man because in other words the reality which is presented to our conscious attention consists of a distinct and separable inert matter and a distinct and separate activity life or consciousness we conclude that we ourselves are compounded of two natures in relation mind and body in biblical phrase man is dust of the earth formed in god's image into which god has breathed the breath of life the new concept arises when by an effort which seems against nature we turn our attention inwards then we are led to recognize that we are not at points where two realities converge but at points where two directions diverge that the mind-body is not two things associated but one thing dissociated then the ultimate concept of reality is not a reality which conditions life and knowledge but a reality which essentially is life and knowledge what had previously appeared as the condition of life now becomes an opposition which conditions the activity of life i propose then to consider the relation of mind and body from this new standpoint a standpoint for which as i shall endeavor to show modern physiological research has prepared the ground to ordinary observation there appears to be constant and continuous interaction between mind and body but the great obstacle to the formation of a scientific theory of interaction is the inconceivability of a causal chain in which the ideal or psychical facts are interlinked with mechanical or physical facts psychophysical interaction cannot be merely an extension of the sphere of physical causation ideas will not do work like the expanding gas in the cylinder of the heat engine the propagation of a movement cannot be the interchange of energy between corporal and spiritual things if there is mind energy if the term denotes an actual energy of mental things and is not simply a metaphor derived from a concept of physical science this mind energy is not convertible into physical energy it is confined to a spiritual chain just as physical energy is confined to a corporal chain this incompatibility between mechanical forces and spiritual forces has been a stumbling block in the path of all interaction theories 
and has driven philosophers and psychologists to take refuge in theories of parallelism the important factor in framing a new theory of interaction is the fact which we may take to be now established beyond any question that some disorders of the psychological organism are primarily due to mental lesions to what is called a mental trauma what is now known technically as functional disease is at least in some cases purely psychological in its origin whatever physiological derangements may be its accompaniment this was unknown and unimagined by the older theorists the recognition of it completely alters our conception of the nature of the individual mind or soul it is impossible any longer to regard the mind as the concomitant of certain neurological processes in the body the mind has a structure of its own it is an integration of coordinated psychical elements or processes personal memories tendencies desires wishes and the like which mutually repress or inhibit one another or as the case may be interplay with and evoke one another this psychical matter has an organization as complete and a unity of living process as perfect as the physiological matter of the body the mind is not an intermittent consciousness lighting up with awareness certain states of the organism and dependent on particular physiological processes it is a structure which can suffer injury derangement or disorder independently of the physical derangement of the body if then there be an interaction between soul and body it by no means follows that parts or constituents of the soul must interact with parts or constituents of the body it may be that the whole soul or the soul as an individual interacts with the whole body as a self-controlled unity of coordinated mechanisms i wish to discuss whether such interaction is conceivable and if it be in what manner it is possible to represent it let me give an example in order to make my meaning unambiguous i will quote mr mcdougall's instance of the telegram in body and mind for illustration only and without any reference to the author's purpose in the context quote, a man receives from a friend a telegram saying your son is dead the physical agent to which the man reacts is a series of black marks on a piece of paper the reaction outwardly considered as a series of bodily processes consists perhaps in a sudden total and final cessation of all those activities that constitute the outward signs of life or in complete change of the whole course of the man's behavior throughout the rest of his life a causal interaction theory would schematize this occurrence somewhat as follows one physical stimulus the black marks on the paper two excitement of the neurons of the visual area of the cortex three vision four excitement of the neurons of the perceptive area of the cortex five perception of physical sign six excitement of the neurons in the association centers of the cortex seven perception of the significance of the sign eight evocation of memories and projection of memories in the form of imagination nine excitement of vasomotor centers of the cortex ten emotions eleven expression of emotion in glandular activity and skeletal movements and so on in this scheme interaction is conceived as a continuous interplay of physical and psychical factors the single event the reading of the telegram is conceived as a series of separate and independent events in causal connection they are stages of a process and each of the stages might itself in its turn be resolved into a series of independent events the words for example might be considered as preceding the sentence and letters as preceding the words and each stage we might choose to mark off the process within proved to be neither wholly physical nor wholly psychical but a series of events some physical and some psychical the interaction of mind and body is in my view of an entirely different nature it is always the adaptation of an attitude of the body to a disposition of the mind 
it is therefore the interaction of one system with another system where both cooperate in a common end i should therefore schematize the occurrence in this way one an existent attitude of body adapted to a disposition of mind determined by a long history modified by new experience the reception of the telegram two profound change in the mind three change in the attitude of the body adapting itself to the change in the disposition of the mind the difference between my scheme and the last is that the reading of the telegram is not two events first a purely physical action giving rise to second a purely psychical experience it is one single indivisible event which affects and modifies at one and the same time though in completely different ways two systems interaction is always an action of the whole mind on the whole body or an action of the whole bodily system on the mind not only in great shock experiences but in ordinary and insignificant experience there is the same process every new experience modifies the whole mind and the modification of the whole mind entails an altered attitude of the whole body the principle can be illustrated equally well if the initiation of the experience be an action instead of a passive stimulation suppose i am the sender of the telegram the execution of the action involves bodily movements of inexhaustible complexity but the action is simple and indivisible the state of my mind also while i am performing the action may resolve itself on analysis to an inexhaustible complexity of feelings thoughts and wishes but the physical action and the mental purpose are not composite and the composite parts do not interplay with one another in the causal chain the whole body or the body as a whole mechanism is at the disposal of the whole undivided and indivisible mind what then are the two systems the mind consists of those factors or constituents or characters of the psychophysical organism which form its personality the researches of modern psychologists who have specialized in abnormal psychology have revealed to us that personality is a complex organization of psychical or spiritual constituents or factors of a different order from physical or corporal matter and dynamic in their nature also this personality or spiritual unity may suffer dissociation and then we have the phenomenon of a divided or of a multiple personality such dissociations are due to a derangement or rearrangement of psychical matter such as memory or to a failure or deficiency or deflection of will-power in any case personality can only be expressed in psychical terms and the psychical constituents to which these terms apply are totally different from and possess an existence of another order than that which we express in the concepts of physical matter and energy on the other hand the investigations of the physiologists reveal to us that the body is a perfect machine the life of which consists in constant and continuous action and reaction to physical stimuli brought about by the integration of innumerable coordinated muscular actions by means of a perfected system of neural communications the physiological processes are cycles of physical and chemical changes and the whole mechanism is resolvable into material constituents and physiological processes a system of interchange of energy the initiation of the working and its direction is performed by the mind the carrying out into action by the body the corporal cycle is a closed system it receives its energy from the physical world and returns the exact equivalent in work and heat physiologists are not agreed as to whether the life of the body can be expressed in the mechanical terms of the particular vital processes the life belongs to the processes as a centrally controlled centrally coordinated whole but the life is not the mind and there is a life of the mind as there is a life of the body whatever be the nature of the vital principle it is included in our concept of body when we distinguish body from mind it is not the corpse but the living body which we distinguish from the mind when we consider the interaction of mind and body 
in the actual psychophysical organism there is a living unity of physiological process and a living unity of psychical experience it is important to keep distinct the problem of the relation of life and matter and that of the relation of mind and body or rather to distinguish the life which we oppose to matter from the mind which we oppose to body when i speak of body in this relation i always mean living body and not its physical constituents in contrast to its life the two problems resemble one another inasmuch as both life and mind stand for a unity which confers concrete individuality on the manifold particular processes it coordinates the difference is that life gives individuality to a group of material constituents undergoing a cycle of physiological processes while mind gives individuality to the experience that is to the conscious or attentive processes of the living organism the narrower problem may lead up to and depend upon the more general but for our present purpose we are concerned only with the particular problem of mind and body we may then state the problem of interaction as the reconciliation of the two following propositions one the constituent factors of the mind and the constituent factors of the body are absolutely heterogeneous and there is no common factor in psychical and physiological process two there is a continuous adaptation of mind and body so that a change in the disposition of the one entails a change in the disposition of the other it may be thought that the first of these propositions negatives the theory of interaction and compels us to adopt the alternative theory of parallelism there seems to me a simple reply to this we can point to two facts which themselves are facts of interaction interaction is therefore not a theory to account for facts but a fact to be reconciled with the other facts the two facts are first that all changes in the mind are mediated by the living body and second that all actions of the living body carry out the purposes of the mind to go back to the illustration of the telegram the mind is absolutely dependent on the body for the recipients which makes the purely spiritual change and the body bears in all its subsequent actions the direction and characteristic expression which the mind has imposed the body is the avenue to the mind of the experience which changes it and the body is the outlet to the mind of the action which expresses that change there is no parallelism here but interaction whatever be the nature of the interaction in neither case is the physical fact parallel with the psychical in the first the psychical fact is responsive to the physical fact in the second the physical fact is responsive to the psychical fact let us then inquire what is the nature of soul or mind as it is revealed to us in the objective study of psychical phenomena also what is the nature of living body as it is revealed by the study of physiology and then what is the nature of the synthesis or union of these two natures let us begin then by considering the nature of mind or soul it is useful to retain both terms even though we mean to indicate by them an identical reality when we use the term mind we seem to throw emphasis on the intellectual side while when we use the term soul we seem rather to emphasize the sentient and emotional side of our spiritual nature we are not in the first instance conscious of the mind as an object distinct from the body we apprehend it rather as a distinct kind of quality which some objects have and others have not we are accustomed to use the term mind simply to indicate mental qualities and the term soul to indicate the individual character of the whole of these qualities then again we use the term soul to comprehend the psychical as distinct from the physical qualities of every material object which is living and we further distinguish the rational soul from the animal soul and the animal soul from the plant soul the soul or mind which i am now opposing to the living body is the rational soul it seems to consist and depend upon the possession by a living creature of two faculties one passive a faculty of being conscious or aware 
the other active, a faculty of desiring or willing. The first is a specific knowledge of the body and its environment. The second, a specific tendency to responsive action by the body. In each case, a mental quality seems to characterize a sensible object, and the soul seems to be the common term for these mental qualities. In other words, it seems as though the soul may be the phenomenon of consciousness or awareness exhibited by certain living material objects possessing a definite kind of organic structure together with the power of purposive action which such endowment brings with it when we consider the nature of this consciousness however it becomes evident and can be clearly and directly proved that consciousness is not the quality of a sensible object but the manifestation of an individual spiritual that is of an immaterial object this definite immaterial object is the soul what is the proof of this and why if true is it not immediately evident the reason why if true it is not immediately evident is clear when we consider the conditions in which our own individual consciousness arises the world presents itself to our mind in the first instance as an aggregate or congeries of indistinguishable spatial objects each having a nature of its own we are each of us one among these juxtaposed and displaceable objects the object i call me possesses a special quality of consciousness or awareness other objects also seem to possess this quality but not all the vast majority indeed seem by their pure passivity to be without it what then does this quality of consciousness appear as it seems at first extremely simple consciousness is my awareness that i am an object among other objects this seems to be a passive quality in so far as it is an affection of the object me and an active quality in so far as it relates me to other objects which are not me if i assume the existence of these objects then one way of imagining what consciousness or awareness is will be to represent one of the objects as possessed of the quality of being aware of the presence and nature of others my knowledge will seem to depend on a faculty in me to contemplate what exists when however i look more closely at the nature of this knowledge and make no assumption about existence i see that it is not and cannot be contemplation that is to say knowledge may include contemplation but cannot in itself simply be contemplation it is of a different and altogether more complex character than contemplation it is recognition the immediate contemplation by one object of another object or of other objects granting there may be such a thing would not be what we call knowledge or even consciousness or awareness to be conscious or aware of an object is not to contemplate it but to recognize it recognition implies precognition whereas contemplation purports to be simple and immediate and of itself implies no previous acquaintance recognition supposes memory and also constructive imagination without which memory would be only a recollection of the past not knowledge of the present remembering and imagining are not qualities of sensible objects we are forced in order to give meaning to the terms to oppose mind to matter memory and imagination are qualities of an intelligible object the mind and not of a sensible object the body their nature is spiritual and not material there have indeed been many attempts to show that memory may be a material fact it has been suggested for example that it is one in kind with the trace which every material thing however great its resilience even flint or steel seems to retain of every force which has acted upon it but this is wholly to misunderstand the nature of the fact and is due no doubt to an ambiguity in our use of the term memory we use it to designate two wholly distinct conscious phenomena namely first 
the pure record of our past experience which we retain and recall at need and also second the disposition or habit of repeating past experience which is either innate and part of our nature or else acquired by practice this habit memory the memory which repeats is a motor disposition and therefore dependent on the setting up of mechanical contrivances in the psychophysical organism pure memory on the other hand is unintelligible as a material fact if there be any one thing which we can point to and say this is spiritual mental psychical and in no sense material it is memory it may still be objected however that this only proves that memory cannot be considered as the quality of a sensible object in so far as that object is purely spatial but it will be said every spatial object is also in a time relation the living body is spatio-temporal may not memory and imagination then be temporal qualities of sensible objects that is qualities of living bodies enduring through the continuity of a changing process the reply is that memory is not static and mechanical we do not remember indifferently what has happened to us and the vividness of our memory is not proportionate to the strength or weakness of the original sense stimulus we remember only what has interested us and what to some extent consciously or unconsciously has engaged our attention it is the direction of this interest and not the actual mechanical modification of the sense organs which determines what shall and what shall not form a record how can such a record be mechanical our body contains various and innumerable reflex mechanisms continually giving immediate and automatic responses to definite stimuli but no imaginable complexity of such reflexes would yield memory or imagination memory represents the past imagination the future not according to a scale of sense impressions or of physical stimuli but according to the organization of a special interest this leads to the main consideration memory and imagination do not pertain to the continuity of physiological processes in the body but to the unity and continuity of conscious experience which we term the personal self the continuity of living process in the body and the continuity of conscious process in the mind are not one in the same continuity the two continuities are in relation for there is neither affection nor action of the mind save by means of the body but the mind is a continuity of conscious experience quite distinct from the continuity of living process and quite different in its nature the two continuities do not even present a point-to-point -point correspondence there are breaks in the bodily condition of consciousness normal breaks in sleep abnormal breaks in certain diseases and on the occasion of injuries or poisons and these breaks are of varying duration yet however long the interval between the states of consciousness there is no break whatever in the continuity of the consciousness when we awake from sleep or when consciousness returns after a long coma we are one and the same person in everything which concerns the conscious continuity no external stimulus nor internal cerebration which may take place during periods of unconsciousness enters into or goes to constitute the continuity of memory which is the personal self it is true we may dream and may remember the dream and the mind may be affected by it after waking but it is the dream we are conscious of having had when we have awakened from sleep not the actual dream consciousness itself as it has occurred in sleep which enters into the personal memory record on the other hand there may be breaks in the continuity of the personal self-consciousness when there is no break whatever in the continuity of its bodily condition in such case we have a wholly different kind of derangement the break may take the form of an amnesia and according to its extent and severity there will be a disruption of psychical unity or it may take the form of complete dissociation and give rise to the condition of double or multiple personality it is evident therefore that there is a unity and continuity of mental process distinct from and other than the unity and continuity of physiological process whatever be their mutual relation 
it is however when we consider the cognitive rather than the contemplative function of the mind when we consider desire volition action rather than perception memory imagination that we are made aware of a definite mental structure our psychical nature is based on innate instinctive impulses which are for the most part unconscious up to quite recent times these psychical dispositions were regarded in a general way as the necessary accompaniment of the natural functions of the bodily organism more especially the biological necessity of sexual reproduction which in the higher animals involves the union of individuals organically distinct but complementary to one another for the reproductive function which was supposed to have given rise to the sexual instincts the sexual instincts were supposed to have undergone further modification in evolution and to have called forth auxiliary instincts with appropriate emotions such as parental affection tender emotion gregariousness and so forth these again were supposed to be the basis of our social and political institutions our unconsciousness of this instinctive nature was simply taken to be evidence that it belonged to our brute bodily organization constituted our animality and was wholly irrational in the light of modern investigation we have had to revise the whole concept of this unconscious nature and to replace it with the concept of unconscious mind to the older psychology the unconscious mind seemed a contradiction in terms for mind was generally a synonym for consciousness and the unconscious was therefore the negation of mind no one now quarrels with the term though there are many theories and acute controversies concerning the fact these i shall avoid as irrelevant to my present purpose I will confine myself to indicating a few now generally accepted facts which clearly imply a definite mental structure analogous to the bodily structure and a definite unity and continuity of psychical process analogous to the coordinated unity and continuity of the physiological process End of chapter eight part one